Welcome to Frameline. I'm Barbara Gosowski, here as usual with my favorite critic, Courtney Small. Hello, how are you doing today? Terrific. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. Fabulous. Okay, so today we have a bunch of films to talk about um, and a special event. You'll find out in a minute or in a few minutes what that's all about. Uh, but first, Courtney's going to start us off with a big film that has uh, just recently been released in the theaters. Yeah, since our um, last episode, the latest Marvel blockbuster, um, Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania, was released. And, you know, as with all Marvel movies, it did fairly well at the, the box office. Um, you have Peyton Reed coming back for a third time to um, direct this franchise. And this one is a bit of a family affair because you have Scott Lang played by um, Paul Rudd and Hope Van Dyne played by Evangeline Lilly and the rest of the basically Pim Van Dyne Lang family all getting trapped into the quantum realm, which is basically a universe um, underneath their regular universe. Uh, so you have this whole story that is essentially, I guess, going to set up the, the next wave of Marvel films and set up the next big Avenger film, because this film, you really get to see Kang the Conqueror, who's played by Jonathan Majors, and he's going to basically be the big bag the big bad guy, the, the new Thanos of the, the Marvel universe, if you will. Um, I wasn't taken with this film. This was actually my least favorite Marvel film in a while. And it's definitely my least favorite of the, of the, the franchise. And I think part of the problem I had with it is that from a writing standpoint, this film, and I would even argue a couple of the other recent Marvel films like Doctor Strange, to me feel like they've been treading water you know, uh, biding time until they try and get all the pieces ready for whatever the new Avengers movie is going to be. Jonathan Majors is fantastic as Kang, but Jonathan Majors is pretty much fantastic in everything he does. But the rest of the characters are so thinly written. And there's a point in this film where it literally turns into Star Wars. And, and essentially you have Ant-Man Wasp and, and, and Scott Lang's daughter, Cassie, who now has an Ant-Man suit, because of course, She's got to, you know, they got to usher in the new generation of superheroes, all trying to rally the the downtrodden of the quantum realm to rise up and basically fight against the, the dictator Kang, who's essentially been trapped in that universe. And he's desperately trying to get out because once he gets out, he's going to do what he does and go from universe to universe, just destroying things. There's a weird sense of activism in this film and i guess you could say like star wars films have always had that but especially in the era we're in you feel that in the writing they directly point out you know standing up for the little guy the underprivileged we need to come together and someone like ant-man who's um, received a certain amount of fame and popularity because of being part of the avengers and stopping thanos he's now an author, he's living the good life, and his daughter's now the activist that's getting arrested for protesting and standing up, but they don't really seem to grasp the idea of what it really does mean to be an ally and to be a true activist. So, so for example, there's a, a sequence in this film where Cassie decides that she's going to help a rebel fighter 
who's been captured by Kang. And her whole plan is to break this woman out and, you know, get them and rise up and get the people to rise up. But she doesn't really have any ideas. So her plan was basically as far as, well, let me try and get this person out of jail. And then she has to ask the woman, well, what are we going to do now? And the woman basically has to give her all the steps of what to do. We're going to do this. We're going to send a message out. We're going to blah, blah, blah. And there's a lot of moments in the film where it feels like the heroes don't really understand the true plight of the people that they're quote unquote supposed to be saving. And it just makes for it. It feels false. A lot of it. And I know it's Ant-Man. It's supposed to be kind of goofy humor, but even that wasn't as funny. And then on top of that, because Marvel has been producing so many, so much things, so much content in the last few years, the special effects don't look that great. And this film, especially in 3D, looks really grimy, like the color palette. It just doesn't work. So it just felt like a lot of ideas that were thrown at the wall and some comedic bits thrown, you know, loosely tying everything together. And then they go, well, that's good enough. You'll you'll like it. I, I personally don't think it's that great. Um, you know, maybe what's coming next for Marvel will be far more impassioned, well thought out. But this this particular wave of Marvel just feels like a lot of quantity and not much quality. It sounds like there's you were saying like in certain Marvel films, like recently, like they, they're building towards something. And they're building towards something like supposedly that's going to work. That's going to like be better. But how much do you believe in that? Having watched these latest films, do you I, really think it's going to happen? I, I think it will. I think when they get to whatever new Avenger thing, they will hopefully have it figured out. And I, and the reason why I think it, it will is because Bob Iger, who's the head of Disney, has recently announced that they're cutting back on the Marvel content that they're releasing each year. So even shows that they had planned for Disney Plus that were supposed to come out this year, they're pushing back because they've realized they've oversaturated the market. And like, you know, if you, if I think of like this wave of Marvel films, I would say outside of Black Panther, Wakanda Forever, and maybe Shang-Chi, the rest of the films have been forgettable. Like, you know, I like Thor. Love and Thunder has some moments. But when you really think back to all the other times Thor has been on screen, you're not going to go to Love and Thunder as your first choice. And the same thing with Ant-Man and Wasp. You're not, uh, Quantumanium, you're not going to think of this film immediately say, oh, this is, you know, one of the the better films. Like there's, there's a lack of true character development. It's it's like, okay, you've, you've seen these people in like four or five films now. We don't really need to develop them even as they're trying to establish some of the younger generation of heroes, they're not doing it in a way that makes it interesting. Like Cassie is not an intriguing character outside of the fact that she's an activist, but she's an activist with a whole lot of privilege. She's the type that can get arrested multiple times and know that her famous, you know, grandfather played by um, Michael Douglas and Michelle Pfeiffer as the, you know, surrogate grandma, they're all going to bail her out. You know, it's like there's never there never feels like there's any consequences for any of those people because they're living such a nice privileged life now. Um, so it just doesn't it doesn't ring true. Whereas like Wakanda Forever, you had to deal with an actor dying and in relation, a character dying and a community having to deal with that, with also the weight of historical racism. And then you have this new villain who's 
dealt with the same issues that you've dealt with. And because of something that you did now, governments are coming down on his land and disrupting his, like there's, there's layers to it. Um, whereas this one, it, it literally just turns into Star Wars about at the halfway point. And it's not like an interesting Star Wars movie and it's not an interesting Marvel movie. So I don't know. It's, 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 look, it's made us money, but even just talking to regular people, the, the, the most positive thing I've heard is, Oh, it was okay. You know, yeah. it was kind of fun. Like that's not really selling it, especially for a Marvel big yeah. studio. Like they don't want to hear uh, it was fine. Like that's not a a standard for a a big blockbuster. Yeah. So I don't. I don't think it will stay in people's conscious that long. Um, but who knows? Maybe when it hits Disney Plus, people might be a little more kinder to it. Well, when it hits Disney Plus, you get to see uh, Jonathan Majors act, which is always a treat, right? Yes, I'm exactly. guessing. <laughs> and you know, I we'll talk about good acting. You know, Jonathan Majors is great, but there's a film that I know you saw that I think has a, a really great performance. Um, do you want to talk about Return to Soul? Yes, Return to Soul. You know what's great about this performance? Uh, well, it's one of the great things. One of the, the most amazing things about this performance is that it's an acting debut for this woman, Park Ji-min. She is stunning as the lead character. Now, in Return to Seoul, um, this is a character study, and it's a very in-depth, emotionally complex study of this character that seems mercurial on the surface, but you know there's a lot more going on. And, and let me just tell you what happens. Um, so Park Ji-min plays Freddie. And Freddie is short for Frederica. Uh, she is uh, a woman who grew up in France. She was adopted. She's originally from Korea, born in Korea. But uh, her parents gave her up for adoption. Um, there was this wave of parents giving uh, Korean parents There's this whole history, which which the film does explain um, of parents giving up their children for adoption so they could have a better life. So Freddie, it turns out on a whim, gets jumps on a plane and goes to Korea. And she does things like this. Like you see her at the beginning. It's it's just amazing the way that Davy Chu just introduces us to this character. It, it's like this like this very um <laughs> I don't even know how to describe it. She, you just, you just like, she just does these things and on a whim. Well, that, that's it. It's like everything's on a whim and, and you just follow her and you're not really sure what, what she's doing and why she's doing it. But that's, that's his point is that it looks like even she's not sure why she's doing it. Um, but the most amazing thing about this film is the way that, um, his camera lingers on her face all the time. So that all the time that we're wondering, what are you doing and why you're doing it? She has this look on her face. You know, on one level, the look is like, like not letting you see anything. It's very stoic. But on another level, once he starts putting it into context of, you know, the other shots the, in the scenes and, and putting her in context, going from close-ups of her face to like um to to larger wider shots of her in in a in an atmosphere in a scenario in a scene you start to see that okay these these like looks on her face like 
there's something going on. There is something going on. And that's that's the most amazing thing is the way that she she just pre- presents so much emotionally just with her face. Um, and he, you know, he contrasts these like close-ups with things like, especially when something emotionally upsetting happens, you know that dramatically in the film, it's a moment of emotional upset, but she won't deal with it. And instead he just cuts to this like scene of frenetic energy of her moving in this frenetic way and the camera's moving with her. And, and it's like, you go from still to frenetic and all of that tells you there's, there's so much more going on. And uh, yeah, I could just go on about this film. I think it's, it's such an accomplished film and yeah, her, her, her performance is astounding really. Yeah. I really um, enjoyed this film and I think, what I liked about it, as you, as you mentioned, Freddie's very much a, a free spirit. Um, and, you know, part of that you could say could be due to her, her French upbringing, but I think a lot of it is she uses that um, free birdness, if you will, as a shield, you know, she, a lot of this film you think, or at least for a good portion of this film, you think she's just kind of being an independent woman in her 20s, you know, free-spirited, finding love wherever she wants to find love, partying, drinking. But you realize a lot of that is sheltering her from a lot of deep fear. Um, There's a lot of questions, especially when she's going to Seoul and, you know, looking into who her parents were. There's also a thing of like, well, do you really want to know? will the answer be disappointing? You know, how do you deal with the fact that someone gave you up, even though you had a reasonably good life? Um, And then also as she's starting to kind of put the pieces together and encountering people that could be like family, how do you um, adapt to a, a family unit that you've never been a part of? you know, and especially in another country where the customs are, are, are different. So it's, it's really a fascinating look at identity that, that spans several years. Like it's, it's a really interesting way that this film is put together. And as you said, I, I love the frenetic moments. There's a scene where she's like just dancing at a bar and really jamming out to this tune that a DJ is playing while her friends are trying to have like a serious conversation with her. But it's such a, fascinating scene because you you see such pure joy and energy in her um and she's just dancing having fun but you also know that she's part of that is her avoiding something that she's not gonna she can't avoid forever yeah so it's just a a fascinating look yeah because she just broke away from them Mm-hmm. And they were trying to, as you say, have that serious conversation with her and trying to get her to focus on something that was it's crucial for her, you know, and, and crucial to her identity and stuff. But instead, no, she breaks away um, and she she does this dance. <laughs> Sorry, I interrupted you. No, no, that's that's all I was going to say. It's it's uh, I, I really enjoyed this film. And I, I think. Um, it's one of the the year's best performances she's just fantastic in this film yeah also um i really think the film is really interesting uh, about 
in the way that it uh, deals with communication and lack of communication. Because at, the, at any given time on the screen in a scene, there are three different languages going on, which is, you know, French. Like she meets people in Korea. She's lucky. Like the woman at the hotel befriends her and uh, she knows French. So at any given moment, she's speaking French to her friend. Her friend is speaking Korean, for example, when they were in the restaurant to people in the restaurant, like to try to order and things like that. And then uh, anyone like, <laughs> so Freddie breaks free and goes off to talk to some strangers and they don't know French. So they all start speaking English or trying to, right? And she's trying to, to like, communicate like a word here and there in Korean, like, thank you. And like, like anybody from outside the society would like you go in and, you know, please and thank you, maybe. And hello and goodbye. Right. Maybe. And so she's trying to communicate with, and this, this extends to like when she's trying to find her family and stuff, like all of this. And then on top of that is um, phone communication and compute, like, trying to do it from computers and trying to use like a translating app, you know, on the computer. And it's like, it's like the ways that people try to communicate and can't, but the moments when they can't, there are like certain moments, you know, um, there's one of her father's relatives when she, she can't communicate in English, but she finally says, welcome. And thank you. You know, um, so these are these are so they mean so much. And when and when Freddie herself can say something in Korean to like someone like in her family or something, and it means so much to them. Um, so these 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 ways of like, that people how they they come together and, and what separates them, but what yeah, it, it's a way that lang like language brings you together, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah, there's there's a lot that's fascinating in this film. Return to Seoul. Uh, before we <laughs> jump to the at-home viewing, um, do you mind if we take a few moments to talk about the Kingston Canadian Film Festival? Which oh no, that be, would be great. Yeah, sorry. Which is starting on um, March second, and I believe goes to the fifth. And and the reason why I said we should pivot is because. When you were talking about connection um, and bridging that that barrier, it got me thinking about some of the films that are playing at this festival. So this is, I guess, the largest festival in, in Canada. It's direct, or maybe even the world, that's related um, specifically uh, for Canadian films. And it's opening with a film called Rice Boy Sleeps. Um, which has been just racking up awards on the festival circuit, but that's also very much a, a film about connection and in many ways, understanding the shifting language. And you have a mother and son who are, you know, immigrants to Canada and they, their experiences are, are both difficult, but in, uh, are both challenging, but in difficult, in different ways. And as you're seeing them grow and evolve and the sun getting older you you start to see a distance start to form in between them and how they they bridge that gap and how do they each understand um each other both 
the heritage that is inherent in them and also this new land that isn't you know as much as Canada is quote unquote welcoming to everyone isn't necessarily that way in practice um so that's you know it, it's a great film and it's it's one that I think a lot of people should see if they're thinking of going to see um or going to check out any of the films playing at the Kingston Film Festival Kingston Canadian Film Festival that's definitely one that they should see yeah, I mean, Kingston's not that far from here. I mean, no. it's, it's, you know, a pretty short, well, shortish drive, right? Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, no, Rice Boys leaves any chance to see this film. And, and in terms of, you know, what you were saying about communication and stuff and, and the immigrant experience, I mean, in terms of the immigrant experience, this is based on the filmmaker um, Anthony Shim's experiences growing up in the 80s. And the film is set in the 80s. So in terms of the way that people in the society treated uh, immigrants, like he's the only child of color in his class. So immediately he stands up, out, he stands out. And uh, the way, the racism that he has to deal with and stuff. And then the mother, like just sort of like not really... um, people not really understanding her experience because, you know, she's working in a factory with, with people who were born here and, you know, when she wasn't. And uh, so they, they both experience this sort of isolation from people. And, but then together it's what's really interesting is the way that Shem, and he does this visually as well, like um, with these sort of like one take scenes uh, and the way that the camera moves, uh, Christopher Liu was the cinematographer on this, and the way that uh, he his camera work sort of it gets the viewer to to get a sense of their when they're together at home. It's like they're isolated, but there's this sort of sense of comfort. You know, it's like they're wrapped up in their own world. It's a singular sort of comforting world that they make together for each other, even though they themselves are having trouble within that world. But still, there there is this sense of um, of them sticking together. You know, it's like it's a complicated vision of the immigrant experience, which is, I think is really useful because, and, and the way that Shem and the cameraman, like the cinematographer, Christopher Liu, the way that they draw the viewer into this world is really, really vital, I think, because, you know, it, it helps the viewer to understand what they're going through and helps them to relate to that. Yeah, it's, it's definitely um, the one that's we're seeing. And another one I would recommend along the similar lines with the immigrant experience, but just from a a different perspective is brother by Clement Virgo. And this one just got nominated, I think for, was it 14 Canadian screen awards? Um, Yeah. 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 It was the highest. Yeah. Yeah. And, and to be be fair, we should note that uh, rice boy sleep also got several nominations as well. They're both, I think competing for best Canadian film, but brother focuses on, two Jamaican Canadian brothers growing up in Scarborough um, and just the, the difficulties that they have growing up in an immigrant community, one that is being over-policed, one where poverty is, is um, prevalent 
and you see the how the immigrant struggle and how you know the mothers working hard to try and provide for the brothers but that also means she's not home that often which leads them to be you know being able to go out a little more at and even at a younger age than, than they should and as they're growing up and interacting with the community both the good and bad aspects of it it, it really has an impact on, on a certain event that really changes the course of the the family and it, it basically brings in a lot of isolation like you know there's a lot of stuff that's occurring on the outside that eventually causes a lot of ins- um, isolation on the inside within the the walls of of their apartment it's a really fascinating film that jumps across three different time periods but in such a fluid way um, sometimes you're 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 in a pine period only for like maybe 30 seconds before you're jumping to another one and yet it it all comes together the performances are are fantastic and similar to rice boy sleep is another really emotionally moving work um that i i would highly recommend yeah no me too i mean i can't really add anything to what you said i think you've summed it up like so perfectly um because i would just be repeating the fact that you know in terms of creating like this this world like the the relationships within the film um, and the way that the film draws us into that. Uh, in this case, like, as you say, like it does it with the jumping back and forth, but the jumping, like so fluid, the way mm-hmm. Clement Virgo does it, it's just so enticing. And so like, this draws us in as much as Rice Boy Sleeps did, but in a, in a completely different way. Like, so, you know, it's very exciting. Yes. And, uh, you know, the festival's got a wide range of, of works and you know we talked about two dramatic ones but there are also some comedies there for you know people who want a lighter tone uh one that was another film that's got a a lot of buzz um and i think it's going to be released really soon in in general theaters but it's playing the festival and it's called i like movies um about a young man who dreams of going to film school in New York. Um, he's obsessed with movies, but he's also has, he's antisocial in, in some ways. We'll, we'll say that his, his movie. He's, like, obs- he's a character. <laughs> yes. Yes. His movie obsession um, can be considered rather toxic. And in terms of how it gives him a sense of, of ego and um, various sense, uh, he's a self-centered individual and that impacts both his friendships and the relationships he has with co-workers when he starts working at a a video store um it's a really fascinating coming of age tale uh that has plenty of humor um and you know the character i would say is not necessarily the most likable but you definitely understand him yeah i mean it's funny like he's not he's not so likable but you do you do like over time because you can see how much it's hurting him the way that mm-hmm. he's acting and this this sort of holier than thou just because he knows movies right i mean the geek in me could relate right so this is like film nerds really can understand this although i don't think we take that either of us or anybody that I know took it to the, these kinds of extremes. But I mean, when you consider his age and his immaturity and stuff, but I love the way that the film sort of uh, the arc of the film in terms of his development, his maturity, you know, 
what he learns. Yeah, it's 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 um it's an engaging. Yeah, engaging. but it's funny. It's just it's yeah. funny. Like I don't want to like make it sound like dramatic, like what he learns and stuff. But, oh, it's like you know, it's charming. It, it's 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 very engaging. Yeah. And uh, two other comedies I'll talk about, just briefly mention. Um, one is Relax, I'm from the Future, which stars uh, Reese Darby from Planet of the Concords. And it's a kind of sci-fi comedy about this man from the future who travels back in time, but you're not quite sure if he's there to actually save mankind or if there's um, ulterior motives and... He befriends a local woman who basically sees the idea of having someone from the future being uh, a good avenue to help her financial bottom line. Uh, so when you have those two forces kind of combining, you get a, a nice little screwball comedy. And uh, there's also The End of Sex, which is the latest film by Sean Garrity. And it has uh, Emily Hampshire from a lot of people would know from Schitt's Creek. And Jonathan uh, Jonas uh, Schernick, as they play a couple whose romantic life has gotten a little stale now that they're parents with kids. And when the kids are away at camp, they try to spice things up. And of course, as you can expect, things go horribly wrong at every possible turn. Uh, and I won't say too much about that, but there is a wonderful cameo by Colin Mockery that uh, is just hilarious. And for those who are wanting comedy, um, I, I would recommend those. And the last one I'll, I'll mention, I haven't seen, but it's I've, it sounds pretty intriguing, is a film called Den Mother Crimson. And it's a, I guess, a local Kingston production um, that's directed by Siluk Seysanasi. Um, my apologies if I mispronounce that name, but um, some people might remember him as one of the actors who was in Degrassi Junior High, the original one years ago, but it, it sounds like it's a really interesting kind of dark sci-fi film um, that involves three AI, three artificial intelligent experts who are enlisted to a particular project. And I'm assuming it, when it comes to anything with AI, something's probably going to go wrong. Um, it sounds interesting that's that's all i'll say so that's one i'm kind of looking forward to seeing but yes yeah, the kingston canadian film festival runs from march 2nd to the 5th there's plenty of films to see so we highly recommend it um for those of you who can't make it out to kingston and are looking at for a few things um, to watch at home we have two films that we're gonna talk about oh what a film and a show you know should we start with the film first or do you oh, yeah go ahead show? yeah you're on a roll go ahead well, I don't know if I'm on the roll with this one, but I did see. Um, <laughs> well, I'd love to hear your opinion of this. Then. <laughs> I, I did see Shotgun Wedding, um, the new Jennifer Lopez rom-com slash action film um, that's available on Amazon Prime. Uh, it's a film about Jennifer, where Jennifer Lopez um, plays Darcy and she's on this basically remote island to get married to Tom, who's played by Josh Dumel. They've got a whole bunch of family and friends there. So you've got actors like Jennifer Coolidge, um, Lenny Kravitz, Cheech Marin. They're all there for this wedding. And unfortunately, it just happens that nearby pirates come in, essentially 
take the whole wedding hostage um, where and the bride and groom are left to their own devices to try and figure out how to save themselves and their family. Uh, there's a lot of action beats. It's, you know, it's a typical kind of J-Lo rom-com where the couple has some issues that they have to also work out while trying to navigate this really outlandish situation. Um, I believe that on paper and even while they were filming, they, they must have had a ball of a time because it looks like everyone's having fun. But this film is it just does not work. <laughs> the the plots all over the place, you know, the action and the humor don't quite gel. Um, and it, in many ways, JLo kind of understands the assignment, but it's not that different from anything that JLo's done before. Um, and everyone else kind of has their moments, but just the way how the, the plot and the script works out, it just seems like the film cares more about setting up certain action beats or a gag here and there than it does telling a, a coherent story. And it gets to the point where you can't just suspend your disbelief anymore. It is, it's just way too much. So if you're one of those who is a, a JLo completist, you know, I, I want to see all the Jennifer Lopez romantic comedies. I guess this one's for you, but everyone else, I think we can, you, you can skip. <laughs> Unless you want to see a train wreck. It sounds awful. <laughs> it's yeah, it's, it's, Let's just say um, what you're about to recommend, I would say is 10 times better than, than Shotgun Wedding. And do you want to talk about your, your television recommendation? Oh, yes. Uh, well, it's a, I think it's a recommendation from both of us, right? Yes. Uh, okay, so it's a TV show called uh, Poker Face. It's, uh, it's, it's on Paramount Plus. It's a streaming service from, yeah, Paramount Plus. Uh, but also, I found it on uh, City TV Plus. Which, uh, which is, you know, has a free trial. <laughs> so, <laughs> but I mean, you know, obviously you check out the app, right? Yeah. And um, I think, um, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. I was yeah, going to say, I, I, you can also, if you subscribe to Bell Five, they have an on demand channel um, and it's, it's, you can watch it for free. They upload all the episodes. It's under the City TV heading, but for Bell Five users, because that's how I've watched it. Oh, I didn't know that. Thanks, Courtney. Yeah. That's that's a much better recommendation. <laughs> Thank you. Well, only if you have Bell Five. If you're on Rogers, I'm not sure how, how yeah. that works. Okay. Okay. Um, but yeah, so uh, Poker Face is a TV series that it was created by Ryan Johnson, who uh, made the film. You, everyone just recently saw, and there was a lot of buzz about it. So a lot of people loved it. Glass Onion the Knives Out mystery sequel. And so this is uh, a murder mystery television series starring Natasha Leon. You know her from? Uh, Orange is the New Black, um, The Russian Doll. That's it, right. The Slums of Beverly Hill back in the day, that film. Yeah. So, you know, you know her from recent stuff. And so she's the star and she... <laughs> she it's it's funny this is a funny murder mystery show and she's a real you know talk about a real character uh she's really rough around the edges i mean when is she not right she she she's always like she's always like that and i'm not going to really criticize her for 
like for acting because it this doesn't demand anything more of her than to be this this rough and tumble kind of character anyway um and you know she's she's quirky and she has all these quips about life and stuff but she has this specific ability that uh she can tell when a person is lying so it's called poker face because this got her very far in her poker games when she was playing poker but then word got around you'll find out in the first episode um what happens with that that whole you know poker career you'll find out in the first episode and i only made it to episode two so far uh but then you know it the, it moves along and each episode is its own murder mystery so you get this like mini ryan johnson glass onion kind of treat in in every episode and i looked upon it as a treat because each each of the episodes that i saw like they wrapped up they they presented themselves nicely they weren't overly predictable uh and they wrapped themselves up really nicely and it was a lot of fun that that to me that's all i was looking for and it delivered yeah it it really does and and you know you said you got to the second episode so just wait it gets there's so much for you to to discover um, <laughs> i know I've, I've been looking at i i i the reason i went got to it late was because you know finally somebody's tweet was like oh, i can't believe what happened on the, the la latest episode and i'm like oh god i've got to check out what's going on <laughs> yes and i i will say that you know this series has like a who's who of of actors um, actors that you will recognize, Academy Award nominated actors. Like, th there's going to be a lot of people in each episode that you'll be delighted to see. And I think what I like about this film, uh, and I guess I'll push back a little bit on your critique of of her performance because I think she does a, a really good job in this. But it's it, but partly part of it is just because of she embodies this. I almost want to say Columbo esque kind of persona and. What I like about this particular film is, or sorry, this particular series is that similar to Columbo and Murder, she wrote, you have your murder of the week, um, but you often see the murder happen first. And then it's watching her try and figure out how or who who was the, the culprit. But because she's not a cop, because she's not a, a famed mystery writer like in, in uh, murder she wrote every episode she's basically doing these odd jobs that you can only do under the radar like jobs that you can pick up in a town for cash which puts her in many ways always at the bottom of the totem pole uh, so she doesn't have the the clout or the sense of authority to get information like other people does so you you see her often making general genuine connections and it just the way how she plays off different people the the way that she can't let something go if she knows it's not quite right um it it all works and i think for her particular personality and the way how she de just delivers her lines i think it works really really well like she kind of gives the character a bit of a distinct or like we were we were talking offline about how you know the way that she would sometimes forget or not be able to come up with words yeah you know, like just li little something i can relate to <laughs> little things like that that make so her human right yeah make her feel 
feel human. So it's 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 a wonderful show. I've I'm absolutely love it. I I would dare say I enjoyed even more than The Last of Us, which I know a lot of people love, and it's that's a good show as well. But I for me for my personal taste, I I really look forward to like when the new episode's coming out. And I think there's only 10 episodes this season, so I'm gonna have to go through like withdrawal or or something, or maybe rewatch because it's it's become like well, a fun succession weekly. Succession is coming. Succession is coming. So you know what? I have not fixed. started that at all. So maybe at all. Yeah. So I'm behind. Oh. So maybe I should. That will be. I'd I love will start to hear your opinion. I would love to hear your opinion of Succession. We'll have a future episode where we'll discuss. Yeah. Once I've caught up all the seasons and. Okay. Do a deep dive. <laughs> all right. That sounds great. Okay. <laughs> but for this week, that's it. Courtney's off to Kingston and uh, maybe he'll give us a wrap up when he's back. That's it for Frameline for this week. For Courtney Small, I'm Barbara Gosowski. Thank you for listening.